0: Shop now, in store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone.
1: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio.
2: Hey, welcome to Weird House Cinema. This is Rob Lamb. And this is Joe McCormick. And uh, we're going back to the 1940s on this one. This is uh, going to be only the second time we have ventured into the 40s. Uh, the last time was for the film uh, uh, Dr. Cyclops. Ooh, yeah. And uh, this time we're going in for The Beast with Five
1: Fingers from 1946. Both of these films uh, that we've done from the 40s have unusually good special effects for their time. So. Mm-hmm. Dr. Cyclops, the premise was there's a mad scientist who gets a bunch of people into his house, and then he shrinks them down to about the size of mice, and they have to find a way to to defeat the giant. But this movie is a killer severed hand movie. So uh, <laughs> so you might wonder, well, I don't know, how, how good could the, uh, the killer severed hand effects be in 1946? But I, I got to say, really good. Yeah, the the special effects in this film are, are pretty great. Uh, you know, spe- especially for the
2: time period. They're they're very effective. Um, you know, if you if you're looking for the flaws, I'm sure you can you can find them. You you know that's not an actual disembodied hand crawling across the floor. Um, you know, if you're looking for a whole lot of blood, you're not going to find it in a 1946 picture for the most part. Uh, but it's there's still some wonderfully creepy scenes, especially when you have, um, uh, you know, the wonderfully weird actor Peter Lorre interacting with it. Because if anybody can act opposite a rubber hand and and make
1: you believe it, uh, it's going to be somebody of Lorre's caliber. That's right. This movie has two meat spiders in it one is the hand, and the other is Peter Lorre. That's right.
2: Uh, now, one of the fun things about this is that I believe we actually mentioned this title, though neither of us had seen it yet, when we covered the 1935 film Mad Love, which uh, that that one was just wonderful film starring Peter Lorre, Francis Drake, Colin Clive. And that film featured hand transplants and supernatural paranoid ideas of what that might mean, uh, as we discussed at that point. Uh, hand transplants were science fiction; it had not been pulled off yet. And this was a film that you know went wild with the idea. Well, if if I receive the hands of a knife thrower, then am I now a knife thrower? <laughs> you know, where and, what yes, is the line? And the answer was that and me? yes,
1: it, you are. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, um, undoubtedly, and uh, and it was well utilized in the plot. Now that tradition. Uh, storytelling tradition goes back at least as far as the 1924 film the hands of orlock which is based on the same source material as mad love but the beast with five fingers takes things in a, a related but different direction entirely and that is if you if you cut a hand off of somebody if some if you remove the hand does something of the the original humans will survive in that hand what could that hand have a life of its own could it crawl around and uh, manipulate things could it strangle people uh, and so forth which I, I guess is related to some of the anxieties and, and sci-fi ponderings that you find in, in works like mad love uh, but this takes it into a uh, an even more ridiculous and, and special effects powered uh, level of monster movie
1: well, there are actually even more similarities than we've already mentioned, because if you'll recall in Mad Love and the story it was based on, which I guess mm-hmm. is the hands of Orlock, Orlock is not the name of Peter Lorre's character. Peter Lorre right. is the uh, is the sort of is the mad surgeon who does the hand transplant. And Orlac is the name of Colin Clive's character, who is a concert pianist. He's like, yes. you know, the, these hands have great talent, and his hands are badly damaged in a train accident. Uh, Colin Clive is riding in a train car with a man who has a large <laughs> sausage with him, and I think also like a dog in a picnic basket. Yeah, um, yeah. But uh, I think the, the train crashes, his hands are harmed, and his, his beloved comes to Peter Lorre and is like, save my, you know, she's like, save my, my fiancé's brilliant hands. And the way that Peter Lorre saves his brilliant hands is by transplanting the hands of a murderer onto this concert pianist. And he finds, you know, okay, it works. His hands, he can use them. But now he, he's not really good at the piano anymore. And instead, what he's really good at is wielding a knife.
2: Yeah, yeah, he's an, he's an expert knife
1: thrower now. Now, this movie is also got some weird hand magic going on, also involving somebody who's a concert pianist. It does, yeah. And this one is also notable
2: for being I – be- I believe, unless I'm missing something, like this is the film that starts it all with crawling hand movies. It's easy to, to take crawling hands for granted now because it's a, you know, it's a well-established trope. Uh, crawling hands are in the Dungeons & Dragons monster manual, you know, that sort of mm-hmm. thing. Bottom's uh, family. Yeah, Adam's family is a big thing. one. Uh, yeah. The thing. Uh, now, in in that, I was looking it up. The thing dates back, I think, to 1954. I think that's when it first popped up in the Charles Adams comic uh, of the Adams Family. Uh, but of course, it famously appeared in the TV series. It, of course, factored into the the two major 1990s films of the Adams Family, as well as the third, I want to say, made for TV or direct to to video um, sequel. Uh, but uh, one thing I was surprised at in that is that the the thing in those films, all three of those, was played by Canadian actor and magician Christopher Hart. Um, which it makes sense if you want to you, you want somebody to play a disembodied hand, you get a sleight of hand guy,
1: you get a magician in there. Right. Yeah, the graceful movements and the well, I mean, the magicians are, are practiced at doing a twirl of the fingers, right, to kind of yeah. dazzle you while they misdirect your attention. <laughs> Now, um, now, it, Rob, I notice, though, you keep calling it The Thing. I think it's just Thing. I think Thing yes. is its name. I think
2: you're, you're correct on that. Um, thing, not The Thing. <laughs> now, in terms of uh, other Crawling Hand features that came out after The Beast with Five Fingers, you have uh, 1963's The Crawling Hand. You have um, a segment of the amicus film Dr. Terror's House of Horrors from 65 starring Christopher Lee. There's another film from Amicus titled And Now the Screaming Starts, and that has Peter Cushing and <laughs> Herbert Laum in it. There's also a Mexican horror film that I, I believe I've watched part of uh, called Demonoid, Messenger of Death, Crawling Hand movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's also famously The Hand from 1981 as well, directed by Oliver Stone and starring Michael Caine.
1: Have you seen this one, Joe? I haven't, but I've seen it described as a remake of the movie we're talking about today, The, the Beast with Five Fingers. I don't know if that's accurate. I don't remember it being
2: angry. This is a film that I, I think I watched it on A&E uh, like on a mm-hmm. Sunday afternoon back in the day. It was one that was in, in rotation there. And I remember it being, it seemed to be like more of a serious psychological treatment. Uh, but no, no, I take that back. I think there was really a crawling hand in it. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, Michael Caine's good in it. And he's like a comic book artist. Uh, that's mm. weirdly named Joe Lansdale, I think. Um John Lansdale. Uh, John Lansdale, say. okay. Yeah. yeah, But every time I look it up, I'm like, is that supposed to be a reference to Joe Lansdale?
1: I don't know. Okay, uh, so that, but in that one, is it also like his hand has such talent in it, and then it becomes severed from his body and goes and does its own business?
2: Yeah, yeah. But then it comes back. Um, but yeah, there's also a lot of like, uh, you know, Michael Caine, uh, dark psychological stuff going on in that one. Um, now, if you're an Evil Dead fan, The Evil Dead 2 from 87
1: famously features some uh, crawling hand shenanigans. Right. Uh, Ash's hand becomes possessed by a demon, and he has to chop it off and then put it under a bucket, which he weighs down with a stack of books, the top of which is A Farewell to Arms. <laughs> yuck, yuck. <laughs>
2: oh, yeah. And, and that's the thing, right? It kind of, I guess, increases – it's so – well-known at this point that it's increasingly about gags so uh, i think there's a crawling hand gag briefly at least in 1993's leprechaun and then there is the comedy horror film from 1999 uh, uh, titled idle hands Mm -hmm. Um, i vaguely remember seeing this one i want to say it has either uh either uh gary Busey's son or that other guy is it matthew lillard or jake Busey? Uh, I don't think either one I've really? seen it. I think I
1: saw this ref- I would bet money that one of those two guys is in this movie. It's got Devin Salwa. he's the main guy he plays the Stoner kid. It has Jessica Alba who was all the rage at the time. It has Seth Green and uh, another guy who plays you know they play a couple of stoner buddies. I definitely don't recall Jake Busey or <laughs> or uh, who who's the other one you said. Uh, what Matthew Lillard? No, no, there are no Lillardians
2: in the okay. film at all. Huh. Well, there you go. And in, in my in my mind, I, I see them clearly uh, running running around with a, a disembodied hand.
1: Well, I can see why you'd think that because it, it has some of the same uh, sheen or grime to it as, say, hackers. Like it, mm-hmm. it's going for a. Uh, alternative stoner cool kid in the late '90s sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, I guess hackers was probably earlier, maybe early '90s. I'm not sure, but uh, I- anyway, it's it's not it's not quite at that level. It's more of a lowbrow stoner horror comedy. A lot of the jokes are about marijuana.
2: Okay. Uh, interestingly enough, Christopher Hart, who played Thing in those Three Adams Family movies, also yeah. plays the hand in Idle Hands.
1: It's the best performance in the film.
2: Oh, and then also, um, this guy goes on to play a hand in an episode of TV's Angel as well.
1: Oh, I never watched Angel. That's the the Buffy spinoff. That's the Buffy spinoff, yeah.
2: Yeah. But uh, yeah, I wasn't familiar with Christopher Hart beforehand, but th- this was beforehand. This was the guy <laughs> for disembodied hands uh, for uh-huh. uh, pretty much an entire decade. So I guess my my main point here is that yeah this is this film sets a trend, this film uh, introduces what would become a trope, and so it's interesting to go back and watch it and think, uh, well, audience had audiences had never seen this before. It's old hat to anybody who lived during the age of the Adams family, you know, but mm. uh, but but at the time, like these scenes where you finally see the beast with five fingers, which is a hand. Uh, is a disembodied hand it's uh it's pretty shocking especially since the effects are so good
1: yeah i agree now i know we set this up at the beginning sort of in contrast with mad love and i I would not say that this movie is anywhere near as great as mad love but Mm -hmm. uh on its own terms it is a uh fun and silly and pretty inventive little uh little uh horror thriller with with good special effects for the time yeah absolutely Uh, Now, at this point, do we even need to give an elevator pitch? We've sort of already done it. It's like, what if there were a murder mystery in which the hand of the killer wasn't attached to a wrist? Yes. Well, let's hear some trailer audio. A piano
0: long silent mysteriously plays again. It's weird and ominous chords filling a bedeviled house with stark terror, a concerto of death, a cobra music of a dead man played by a hand that returned from the grave to wreak vengeance on his betrayers, marking each for murder as it strikes within human power, a horrifying monster that takes its evil commands from beyond, that cannot return to the tomb till it completes its mission of destruction.
2: Now, one thing that's worth uh, noting about this film, too, and and I'm not sure um, I'm not sure if this was was ever even possible, but it it seems like if you were watching this with absolutely no spoilers and having never seen the trailer or a poster or anything, the big reveal that the hand is crawling around on its own might have been more impactful um, Mm. because they kind of set it up like, well, what's happening? What's you know, and and, uh, the first time you see the hand, you can't tell that it has uh, that it's not attached to a body.
1: Right. Somebody will appear in the crack of a door Mm -hmm. and then a hand reaches around from behind them and grabs their throat and starts choking them. But for all you know, the hand could, in fact, be attached to a wrist. It could just be somebody killing this guy. Uh, and then the, there's actually some question later on in the movie about whether it is. In fact, it probably is. The movie implies. Yeah. But it, it doesn't make it clear, even when you see the hand, that the hand is not just a regular hand that it you know that's running around on its own. You don't get to that until probably two thirds of the way through the movie.
2: Yeah. All right. Well, let's talk about some of the people involved in this one. The director is uh, Robert Florey, who lived 1900 through 1979, uh, industrial-strength French-American director who worked uh, from the 20s through the 60s. One of these guys where you, you check out uh, his uh, filmography, and it's, uh, it's just a, this long list of 118 credits. He was just absolutely cranking out pictures during the 1930s, especially. He's hustling. Yeah. Now, his early career was apparently more about um, avant-garde, expressionist uh, work, but he increasingly became just like a cinematic workhouse and also apparently a a very dependable filmmaker, someone the studios could turn to to uh, to, to really put the picture together, you know, put it out, you know, under budget and on time, that kind of guy. Right, yeah. Now, from a purely horror standpoint, he's perhaps best known for Murders in the Rue Morgue from 1932 based on the Edgar Allan Poe story and starring Hungarian-American film legend Bela Lugosi. Oh, as well as ape suit legend Charles uh, Gamora, who we've mentioned on the show before. (laughs) Another florey film of note is The Face Behind the Mask, which was one I was also looking at, potentially to cover in this episode, but went... uh, with the beast instead, this was a film that starred Peter Laurie as an immigrant watchmaker, who's uh, who, who who you know comes in with a lot of optimism about what he can make of himself in America, but then he's kind of chewed up by dark American realities, and he becomes a disfigured crime boss instead.
0: Mm. Um,
2: and then uh, also of, of interesting note, I was not familiar with this film, but Florey uh, directed a noir film titled "Daughter of Shanghai" from '37, which featured. Um, a female Chinese-American lead in the form of Anime Mae Wong, uh, as well as Korean-American actor Philip Ahn. And uh, this was in some ways progressive for the time, as Asian leads were often played by white actors. And in fact, in the same year, Wong lost out the lead role of a Chinese character in The Good Earth. Um, so, uh, I, again, I haven't seen Daughter of Shanghai, but it, it seems to, you know, to be noteworthy in... Uh, In in, in film history. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, I think Wong typically played sort of dragon lady stereotypes, uh, but still it was apparently something of of the time to to see her at the top in the lead, uh, even in a noir sort of crime thriller type of a film. Mm -hmm. Daughter of Shanghai, by the way, also features a young Anthony Quinn popping (laughs) up in a lesser role. So, like I said, Florey busted out a bunch of films, uh, directed a lot of TV uh, later on uh, during his career, and his last credit is actually an episode of the original Outer Limits series, one titled Moonstone, and he also did three different Twilight Zone episodes.
1: Oh, you're the Outer Limits connoisseur. How's Moonstone? Uh, well, my I'm
2: I, I'm not a, a, a connoisseur as much of the original series. I'm more of a, a connoisseur uh, or, or growing connoisseur of the 1990s Outer Limits uh, revival. Uh, so I don't think I've seen Moonstone. I've seen some of the original Outer Limits episodes, and of course they're they're great. But I haven't seen that one. Likewise, I looked up the three Twilight Zone episodes he did, and I, I faintly remember one of them, but I don't think. Uh, any of them are like the really um, famous Twilight Zone episodes.
1: You like the era of the Outer Limits that sometimes has CGI that looks like it's from one of the Wing Commander games. Yeah, it, uh, it really does. I mean, so to, there's also, to be fair, there's a lot of
2: of great practical alien makeup and some cool sure, yeah. set design as they they figure out, like, how can we... On a budget, create a different alien or futuristic hallway for every episode of this series. But yeah, oh. there's some there's some truly <laughs> awful CGI at times as well. I love it. Now, the screenplay for this film uh, was written by a pretty famous name, Kurt Siodmack, who lived 1902 through the year 2000. It's a German-born novelist and screenwriter who left uh, Germany uh, f- first for the for the for Britain and then for the U.S. due to concerns over rising uh, anti-Semitism under the Nazis. Um, his, uh, he, his, uh, his family, uh, was Jewish. Uh, his German output was already pretty successful prior to this. However, uh, including the sci-fi film, I was looking at this one, FP1 doesn't answer, which seems to be about sort of a, sort of an air aircraft carrier base, like a, uh, like not a ship, but like some sort of like a large, uh, like at the time sci-fi aircraft platform in the middle of the ocean. Hmm. Once, he, uh, once he, he left for the UK, he did British war thrillers and he did some comedies, but then he started striking it big with some horror screenplays. He did the, the screenplay for the 1941 film, The Invisible Man Returns, that has Vincent Price in it. Ooh. And then he wrote uh, an original screenplay for 1941's The Wolf Man, starring Claude Rains, Bela Lugosi, and Lon Chaney Jr., He went on from there to write a ton of screenplays, uh, including Frankenstein Meets Wolfman from 43, Mm. I Walked with a Zombie from 43, Son of Dracula from, you guessed it, 1943, and then House of Frankenstein from 1944, uh, along with just a lot of other stuff. But those are some of the titles that jumped out at me. Mm. He also wrote uh, the 1942 sci-fi novel Donovan's Brain, which uh, has been adapted three times. I don't think he was personally involved in any of the adaptations, but... It was adapted in 1944 as The Lady and the Monster, in 1953 as Donovan's Brain, and in 1962 as The Brain. Donovan's Brain has a great poster. Have you seen it? Yeah, yeah. With the, um, in fact, I, uh, I think The Brain from 62 also has a pretty, pretty snazzy poster. But uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm all about a good brain film.
1: I love the colors it's got these big bars of yellow and then the these these creepy eyes and a green background and it says a dead man's brain in a hidden laboratory told him to kill kill <laughs> kill
2: so you can see why this was the perfect guy to uh adapt the beast with five fingers uh, and i say adapt because it's based on a short story by william fryer harvey who lived 1885 through 1937 Uh, I think professionally known as W.F. Harvey, a British writer who wrote horror and ghost stories. Hmm. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free
1: samples.
2: All right, let's get into the cast of this film. Uh, the uh, the credited lead is not Peter Lorre. It is uh Robert Alda playing oh, let's see, in the in the credits it's listed as Conrad Ryler, but that's oh. not what people call him,
1: right? No, it's all over the place. The the promotional materials for this movie call him Conrad Ryler, but then characters on screen call him Bruce Conrad. So it sounds like his name was changed in like the shooting script, but then uh, some something else ended up using a name from an earlier draft or something.
2: That's, yeah, that's crazy because, yeah, it's, it's still listed on IMDb as Conrad Ryler. so it's it's a disservice, disservice to, I mean, they couldn't have possibly realized this, that one day people would be watching your film going to the, you know, this official listing of, uh, uh-huh. of character names to keep
1: track of what's going on, and if you don't have the right names there, we're just going to be lost. Well, whether it's his first name or his last name, he is Conrad, so we can at least stick with that. Yes. So uh,
2: Aldo was born nineteen fourteen, died nineteen eighty six. Uh, originally a vaudeville sing and dance guy who made his way up through the worlds of radio and burlesque theater uh, before landing a role in nineteen forty five's Rhapsody in Blue, playing George Gershwin. Huh. yeah. So by the time Beast with Five Fingers
1: comes out, this Beast is only his fourth film role. Okay. Well, he's got he's got a very optimistic, youthful energy in this. Yeah. Yeah. Calm uh, confidence.
2: Yeah, he's got a good. Uh, I'm not sure what you call the style of mustache that he has. Uh, it's, it's it's kind of like Clark Gable. Hair. Yeah, it's like it's like a Clark Gable, um, which which gives him a unique look. He has kind of a. Uh, I think you pointed out he has kind of, his character has kind of a lupine quality to it. Yes. Uh Alda uh, continued, we'll, we'll, we'll talk more about his character, Conrad, as we, we move forward, but uh, Alda continued to act in film and increasingly in TV, but he did very well on Broadway, popping up in major 50s and 60s runs of stuff like Guys and Dolls. And I'm delighted to report uh, that he was also a cast member on Super Train from <laughs> 1979, a show about an atomic powered train full of like extravagant cars that had things like swimming pools in them. So kind oh. of a predecessor to Snowpiercer. Like the whole show takes place on the train. Right. And I think they have murder mysteries and stuff. Um oh, Everything boy. Is Terrible did a video <laughs> uh, with clips <laughs> from uh from the mini uh, from the like
1: the TV movie that kick the, the the one season series. Oh, I gotta look this up after we're done. Um but oh 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 one thing that I wondered about, and uh you can rest assured, yes indeed, Robert Alda is Alan Alda's dad. Huh. Another thing I was reading about, though, there's some lack of clarity here. I've read that the lead in The Beast with Five Fingers was originally supposed to go to Paul Henreid, the actor who plays Victor Laszlo in Casablanca, though I can't tell if this means he was supposed to play the Robert Alda role or the Peter Lorre role. Hmm. Uh, But either way, it would have been a very different movie. Robert Alda is giving a strangely variable performance in in this movie. Uh, and I guess the role itself is strangely variable. Sometimes he's, like I said, he's Clark Gable. He's Sometimes he's a smooth, rascally con man with this lustful twinkle in his eye. And then other times he's just like a straight down the middle Galahad. He's just this perfectly steady and virtuous hero. Yeah. And one of the weird,
2: unexpected things about this, you know, we'll, we'll get into the plot uh, in a bit, but he – you know he starts that he's the he's he's the top billed actor in the film, he's he's the, the pretty much the first that's introduced I believe, and you expect him to play a more pivotal role in like the the final quarter of the film, but he not really he really, he really kind of he's, he's
1: inconsequential for the most part when you get into the the final act. It seems like in the second half of the movie, really, he's just there to be the handsome man that Andrea King is in love with, and that's pretty. And he stands around and watches things happen.
2: Yeah, yeah, he, he has increasingly little agency, which ultimately I'm fine with. Uh, you know, it's it's kind of nice to see the um, you know the attractive uh, uh, male lead in a film from this era ultimately mean nothing.
1: Well, right, you got to make more room for Peter Laurie, which I'm I'm all for. Yeah. Now, before we we already mentioned
2: uh, Andrea King. She plays um, Julie Holden. Uh, impossible to forget her name because there's a lot of screaming for Julie. Julie! A lot of characters wandering <laughs> around this big uh, castle mansion and screaming her first name.
1: Yeah, and and like the commissario with the Italian accent, just saying Julie many many times. Yes. And- <laughs>
2: Yeah. So, um, so yeah, you, you easily remember her name. If you remember no other character's name in this, you'll remember her. So, uh, Andrea King was a French-born American actor who was especially active in the 40s and 50s, uh, but had a pretty long career on screen and on TV, known for God is My Co-Pilot and The Very Thought of You. But she also pops back up in the 1970s in House of the Black Death and Blackenstein.
1: Hmm. Now, I was looking at her other stuff to to see if I'd seen her in anything else, and there was nothing that really stood out to me, so I don't know what she's like usually. But I, I gotta say, her performance in this movie feels phoned in. Uh, she does not seem to be super interested in being in the beast with five fingers. Mm-hmm. However, her relatively flat acting performance sometimes makes scenes more amusing than they would have been if she was more into it uh, because it, I don't know. It's just like a funny compliment to the weird stuff going on around her and to her awe inspiring hairdos. This is, this movie <laughs> is an event of profoundly big hair uh, which makes me want to see another movie I saw that she was in. Uh, it's a 1950 topic <laughs> film called "I Was a Shoplifter," uh, which <laughs> with an you explanation, she gonna point, hide right? things in her hair to get them out of the store. I think, but
2: before I watched it, when you were t- you were telling me a little bit about th- about it, uh, you said you compared her hair to. Um, Uh, Dracula's hair, like the old man, Gary Oldman,
1: yeah, with the butt cut in the Francis Ford Mm -hmm. Coppola Dracula. Yeah, a couple of times she has an an enormous, like, uh, curly butt cut.
2: (laughs) Well, um, there are some pretty hilarious scenes where her very flat performance is um, is in stark contrast to, say, Peter Laurie's performance. But, (laughs) but, but I hesitate to to like heap the blame on her for this. Uh, or to really cast any blame on her at all, because there are some questions that arise concerning the script. Uh, like, yes. there are scenes where it's like, one character can see things that are not there, and she is perhaps legitimate, her character is legitimately supposed to be looking at nothing, and therefore maybe it makes sense that she is not reacting the same way other characters are.
1: Well, yeah, and, the, and I also want to say, it. it makes perfect sense in the earlier parts of the movie, where there's like, another character who is obsessed with her and she is not into him at all and so her flat performance is great in those scenes because you can tell she's just conveying like an ew get me out of here kind of kind of feeling
2: yeah and kind of going for like a steely calm because there is some crazy dude ranting at you and you're trying to um to to not escalate uh the situation and, right, and trying yes. to like maybe play into their their delusions a little bit so that you can make a you know a beeline for the escape
1: Okay, so I'd say with both of our lead actors so far, there's a little bit of weirdness in how the character is realized on screen. But uh, but then we get to Peter Lorre. He gets like third billing, right? And he, he mm-hmm. plays a character named Hillary Cummins. And this is the main event.
2: That's right. So uh, I mean, we're not going to go super into Lorre's uh, biography and filmography here because we, we spent a lot of time with it in the Mad Love episode. So definitely go back to that. But he lived 1904 through 1964. Uh, he was an Austro-Hungarian actor of Jewish descent who made it big in Fritz Lang's M before, like uh, Siodmak, fleeing the rise of anti-Semitism under the Nazi regime. Uh, a great actor, plagued at times by substance abuse and health problems, but completely unequaled in his ability to play this these kind of artful mixes of sympathetic weirdos and absolute madmen. Mm-hmm. Um, like, it's a, it's a careful... Um, uh, you know, it's, it's a careful um, uh, mixology uh, going on uh, at, at times with the Peter Lorre role because it's not like he's just great at playing like a scary weirdo. It's like he, he, d- he does has have, have this sympathetic nature and then also, you know, just r- is really able to uh, emote uh, through his performance in ways that uh, it, it seems like uh, many actors around him in any, any, just any given film he's in either didn't have the ability to or did not have, like, you know, free um, uh,
1: free reign to do so. I like what you say about him being more sympathetic than you would expect a character in this role to be, because there are several scenes in this movie of him making these desperate... Begging pleas for something that is actually a totally unreasonable request, but (laughs) he he's such a good performer that you feel sad for him. You kind of get on his side. You're like, yeah, why won't why won't you just stay with this old man forever so that uh, Peter Lorre can continue his occult research?
2: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. There's just something about him. I mean, uh, also, I just I just really like a good Peter Lorre performance. That's probably I mean that's that's one of the reasons I was looking at this film anyway. Um, and like, while I was watching this, my wife asked me, she's like, why, how, how can you enjoy a film like this (laughs) compared to, (laughs) so she's just not as into like the older pictures, you know, she's like, how can you, you know, you enjoy a film like this the same way you enjoy a film from uh, like the eighties or the seventies. And, um, you know, I mean, part of it is like, yeah, it is a different era. It's a different, there are different sensibilities in play, but I think a big part of it too is like, there's something about Peter Lorre's voice. It just, it calms me to hear it. Like yeah. uh, there's something about a Peter Laurie performance that I'm just uh, I'm just captivated by the whole thing.
1: Long stretches of the first half of this movie though do, I would say suffer from Peter Laurie deficiency. <laughs> uh, but he he has a more of a role as the movie goes on and whenever he returns to screen our grail of delight overfloweth uh he plays this this queasy bookish little man who is obsessed with discovering uh, forbidden secrets of astrology and his his obsession just builds to uh, these points of absurdity with these excellent freak out scenes I, I i love him in this
2: yeah i have to say one of one of the main reasons i hesitated with this film was that i expected him to be a minor character that gets killed off halfway through the picture mm-hmm. so i was delighted when that was not the case so Peter Lorre is not the only actor playing um, um, a crazy person, uh, which is great, because we also have uh, Victor Fransen playing Francis Ingram. Um, this, uh, this is a fun performance. This is a, the, the actor here. Uh, uh, Fransen was born in 1888, died in 1977. Belgian-born actor known for Hold Back the Dawn, Hell in High Water, and uh, I Accuse. Um, He's pretty great in this as the uh, while he's still alive before he becomes just a hand as the overly dramatic composer and concert pianist.
1: This movie proposes that if you are paralyzed on one side of your body, as Victor Franson's character is, uh, so that you cannot use one of your hands, the other hand somehow becomes incredibly good at both piano playing and choking. (laughs) And Victor Franson embraces this premise with cranky alacrity is really really powerful that's yeah
2: this was a like a sort of a weird um uh, weird movie logic <laughs> uh, for the beast with five fingers to dwell on but yeah it's like he only has the one hand so it has the strength of two hands but then on top of that he's also this this brilliant pianist and so he's you know his fingers dance across the uh you know the ivories with uh, just amazing dexterity and i guess the idea is that all of that intense piano playing um, just makes your the, the hands of a professional piano player like a couple of coconut crabs. You yes. Know? So, like somebody like a like a Tori Amos could just rip a phone book in half with
1: those <laughs> uh, dexterous digits of hers. But if she could only use one hand, then she could rip a phone book in half with one hand. Right.
2: Yeah. There. There. Yeah. There are times where characters um are grabbed by uh, Ingram, and they're like his 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 hand was so so powerful. <laughs> it's uh. It's, yeah. It's it's, it's wonderful. And ultimately, like, that's part of it. It's like the hand becomes so powerful that it cannot die. Like, the man dies, but the hand lives on. The uh, The only other actor of note uh, here, uh, for our purposes, is J. Carol Nash, um, who plays Detective Ovidio Castanio. This is the uh, Italian uh, law enforcement uh, guy. who the commissario. Becomes, the commissario, yeah, who who uh, becomes involved with the various murders going on. No, uh... The actor in question here is actually of Irish descent, although he's, he's playing an Italian. Uh, this is a role that I would say feels really fun and balanced for most of the picture. but by the apps by the time the credits roll, you're sick of him or <laughs> he's well, of sick of him,
1: yeah, because at the very end of the movie, they have him look directly into the camera and then do a vaudeville comedy act. Yeah. what <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, um. This is something we've run into before with films where um, it's like you just could not send the audience home with any ounce of dread in their body. You had to take whatever was funny or, or heartfelt about the film and not only double down on it, but triple down on it in the closing moments. And that's exactly what they do with this guy's character.
1: You remember, actually, there is an ending to uh, Bava's Black Sabbath, much like this, that suddenly at the end, Boris Karloff shows up and he's doing a comedy routine. And he's like, actually, there are no ghosts. Oh, ho, ho, ho. And the (laughs) the camera pulls back. Yeah. And you see the crew and they're all like, don't be afraid now. It's safe to go to bed. There's nothing in your (laughs) closet. Uh (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, uh,
2: I mean it's just—I uh, guess it's just an artifact of the time. You just uh, you just couldn't send the the audience home uh, with a, with a sense of dread. You had to send them out with a smile on their face. I mean, this is theater, right? Uh, one of the interesting things about uh, J. Carol Nash, however, is that uh, he he was an Oscar-nominated actor for um, Sahara from nineteen forty-three and uh, from uh, for a medal for Benny from nineteen forty-five. Uh, his final film role was uh, the role of Dr. Frankenstein in 1971's Dracula vs. Frankenstein alongside Lon Chaney Jr. All right, uh, on to just a few of the, I guess, artistic mentions here. Max Steiner did the music. Uh, Steiner lived uh, uh, 1888 through 1971, Austrian-born American music composer, nominated for 24 Academy Awards. Uh, winning three for The Informer in 35, now Voyager in 42, and Since You Went Away in 44. He also composed the score for Casablanca. Mm. Um, I don't know if this jumped out at, at, at you, Joe. I wasn't familiar with, with this individual, but the, the costume designer on this was Travilla. Just Travilla? Just Travilla, yes. <laughs> it's um, like Madonna? Yeah, yeah. This was uh, born William Travilla. Uh, He was famed for his work uh, uh, with Marilyn Monroe on various films, including The Seven-Year Itch. So that costume that she's wearing in The Seven-Year Itch over the the subway grate, that is the work of Travilla. Uh, He was also the costume designer on The Day the Earth Stood Still. Oh, okay. So he he came up with the Gort suit. (laughs) Maybe so. But uh, anyway, yeah, he was apparently a big name. Uh, If if not at the time, I guess at the time, you can't just call yourself Travilla and not be a big deal. Uh, I mean, I'm convinced, but he lived 1920 oh, yeah. through 1990.
1: Yeah, Truville is great. Uh, so I figure we should call out the, the special effects because uh, yeah. they were so good for the time. They uh, I, I didn't find much written about them, but the special effects are credited to William McGann as the uh, special effects director and then also uh, H. Cunicamp, uh ASC.
2: Yeah, I was looking into either of these guys to see if – Sometimes with films like this, you can, you can see where the special effects people went from there, and you can, mm-hmm. sort of, you can recognize, oh, well, this guy, was a, this guy was a synthetic flesh master because we see it uh, reflected in various pictures they were involved in. But uh, I, I, I couldn't find any direct signs of that here, but uh, I guess these are the guys to thank for these wonderful crawling hand effects because, again, that, they hold up really well.
1: Today's episode is brought to you by eBay All right. Well, we begin somewhere in an outdoor marketplace. It seems in a kind of Mediterranean region, though there are mountains in the background. And then we get a a text uh, that pops up that says, this is the story of what happened or seemed to happen in the small Italian village of San Stefano nearly 50 years ago. So if it was nearly 50 years ago at the time of the movie, this would put this in like the 1890s. Yeah, I believe so. By the way, I could not find evidence of a real San Stefano in Italy, though there is one in Bulgaria. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it looks like you know business is booming in the marketplace. We see children running all around, fruit carts with big dangling strings of garlic. And we see a horse-drawn cart carrying a bunch of tourists around, and it stops so they can have lunch and then looking on from the shadows nearby like a wolf staring at a herd of cattle is Robert Alda playing th- this character again who has multiple names depending on where you look but in the movie they call him Bruce Conrad though if you look him up it might say he's Conrad Ryler either way he's Conrad he's our guy and just just look at him i mean <laughs> yeah i mean he's just an obvious con man from the get-go here Yes, he's got the, the pencil mustache. He, he's got that, that Clark Gable smirk. He's got a, a brimmed hat kind of pulled down low over his eyebrows, cigarette dangling loosely out of his mouth and a kind of smooth looking suit jacket with wide lapels. Uh, obvious, obvious cigarette smoking wolf, and mm-hmm. he slithers up to a couple of American rubes who sit down at a cafe table. He insinuates himself into their lunch date and eventually cons them into buying some fake artifacts. He's got like uh, he's got this whole story about how he he buys things that are actually priceless uh, antiques, but he gets them for a song by going through people's estates, and then he ends up selling some things. I, I did not know what these were, by the way. They're called cameos. Uh, but Rachel and I watched this together, and she explained it to me. They're like these little oval things that have people's heads in profile on them.
2: Oh, okay. So, sort of a combination between like a a person's likeness in jewelry that you
1: might remember them by. Yeah, kind of. But he gets these people the you know, these ignorant farmers to believe that they are buying priceless 15th century antiques, they are not. Uh, the the lady is like I love cameos and <laughs> the dude ends up buying a bunch of them.
2: Yeah, I mean he completely hustles them. It's 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 completely apparent before uh, anything else happens with the plot to uh, to confirm the matter.
1: Right, so Conrad pulls off the con, he gets some sweet U.S. dollars, and he ends up strolling on down the avenue, where he strikes up a conversation with the local commissario, commissario Ovidio Castanio, who is a smooth Italian version of Hercule Poirot. Yes, yeah, I think that's a fair comparison. And it's funny when you see them walking next to each other, because they're like both guys in in hats with thin mustaches smoking rolled tobacco products. Yep. And this this scene that they have together is actually pretty fun. I like the I like the dialogue in this. Oh yeah, because the commissario, he's a fun character, at least uh, for most of the movie, because he clearly knows that Conrad is crooked, but it also implies they're kind of buddies and he's not interested in actually arresting him. He's like, Oh, you are aware it is illegal to sell uh sell antiques without a license and, and Conrad's like, I am aware of every law.
2: <laughs> yeah, they're basically like I... I I would just like to remind you what the law is, and he's like, oh, I I know what the law is. I would not dream of passing that line, and he's like, well, I'm I'm just here to remind you where that line is, and and and, and so forth. Like they have a the, a uh, fun back and forth. Yeah, and it also kind of drives home that our our character Conrad here is uh is is maybe not too bad. He's not so bad that the the local uh, law enforcement is uh, is telling him, hey, cut it out. It's more like. All right, just make sure make sure you know what you're doing, uh, small time con man, and don't don't get too big time on me.
1: Right? They don't mind. Uh, they don't mind him out here mildly hustling the tourists. Yeah, but Conrad also gets some news from the commissario. It is gossip about the Villa Francesco, the estate of somebody named Francis Ingram, who we understand is a very rich old man who has been unwell. And apparently somebody named Julie is planning to leave the Ingram place. The commissario reveals that he has just authorized her exit visa earlier this morning, presumably, I guess, to to leave the country. Mm -hmm. And it's also implied that Conrad has some kind of relationship with Julie. Uh, Mr. Commissario is like, aren't you going to go see her? before she leaves. So we follow Conrad to the Villa Francesco as he approaches through the elegant courtyard that has a lot of uh, lush greenery and, and fancy-looking statues. And uh, and meanwhile, a sullen-looking Peter Laurie watches from a second-story window as Conrad approaches. He's just shooting laser beams of gray sadness out of his eyeballs. Mm-hmm. And the whole time we hear piano music, somebody is playing with great skill and intensity. And it turns out it is Mr. Francis Ingram himself, again played by Victor Franson. Uh, The old man who owns the Villa Francesco is, is a skilled pianist, though with a twist, because he is paralyzed on one side of his body, so he only plays the piano with one hand, the left hand. Though his left hand alone is implied to be of of the most incredible skill, the incredible virtuosity of his one-handed piano playing. And Conrad stops at the door to listen while, while he does this performance. And also meanwhile, Julie played by Andrea King. She is sitting beside the piano in a nurse's uniform, supposedly listening to him play, but honestly looking excruciatingly bored. <laughs> I was uh, trying to think of how to describe it. She looks like, an adult at a party who gets, like, cornered by a friend's seven-year-old kid who is explaining the plot of Dragon Ball Z for 30 minutes. Oh, yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. Or, or walking you through the, uh, the evolution of various
1: Pokemons. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, and you're just like, uh-huh, wow, yeah.
2: <laughs> I, I have learned, by the way, to, to ask very good questions about Pokemon. I am a good receiver of Pokemon uh,
1: conversation at this point. So you can do this without looking as bored as she does, right? I hope so. I hope so. Anyway, after he finishes playing, uh, Julie picks up this this very conspicuous, gigantic ring and puts it on Mister Ingram's finger. And buddy, this ring is bananas. It, it is probably <laughs> it's like the biggest ring I've ever seen.
2: Yeah, one gets the impression that it is. Uh, this is a black and white movie, but I get the impression that it's deeply red. You know. Yeah. Um, and, and so on the film, it's, it's deeply dark and black and it just kind of like sucks you in.
1: Right. So it, it sticks in your mind and it's supposed to, because you will see it later to, I think, help you identify whose hand you're looking at when you just see a hand. he It's this giant conspicuous ring and he always takes it off and sits it on top of the piano when he plays.
2: Yeah. And there's this, this scene with Julie here where he, he, he holds out his hand for her to put the ring back on, mm-hmm. which seems kind of weird uh i mean it is weird uh, like they're getting married Yeah. yeah like there's a ritualistic quality to it but
1: uh their cinematic payoff later right Uh, So Julie lets Conrad inside and we learn more about all of their relationships. So we find out that Conrad is well-known at the Villa Francesco. He and Ingram are good friends, such good friends that Ingram seems to know about Conrad's tourist scamming racket because Conrad's like, you look very well. And Ingram's like, ah, save it for the tourists. Don't do that on me. (laughs) Uh, And we find out that they play chess together a lot, often for money. And Conrad Mm -hmm. always wins and, and takes Ingram's money.
2: There are a lot of freeloaders in this household. Um, yes, I mean, I, mean not, I mean, Julie's not a freeloader, but uh, but Conrad and um, and uh, Peter Laurie's character uh, uh, Hillary. Um, yeah, it, I mean, I guess. I mean, I guess there's there's camaraderie here. I guess Ingram's getting some. He's getting companionship out of it. Um, mm. But they're, they're they're very much there. Uh, you know, enjoying the facilities
1: uh, and sharing in his money. Julie's the only one working. Right. Everybody else has a different kind of hustle going. Mm -hmm. Uh, But so uh, Conrad uh, also compliments Ingram's piano playing. I think the situation is that he he was once a famed pianist who played with both hands, and then he had a stroke or some other kind of uh, medical event, and his right hand became paralyzed, so he learned to play concert piano all over again with only one hand. And Conrad helped him in this, because he's also a musician, and he uh, re-scored famous pieces of music for Ingram in such a way that they could be played one-handed on the piano.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It, it, the, the film reminds you a couple of times, yeah, that Conrad is himself a musician, that we never actually see him doing anything musical, I don't think.
1: No, I don't I don't think once. Uh, and there, there's there's a moment of that bilateral hand awe, because uh, like, Ingram starts – looking at his left hand and he says, now that all my strength, all my will is concentrated in these fingers. (laughs) And Conrad says, exactly, the power, the tonal quality, the prodigious technique. So it's not explicit, but they seem to be implying that that it's only logical that if a man has use of only one hand, it will double in strength and skill, absorbing the latent power of the other. Yeah,
2: yeah. Perhaps even like over, it, it's it's uh, it's kind of implied, especially with some of the occurrences that happen later on, that the the hand becomes more powerful than Ingram himself. Yes. like yeah, it, it is. Uh, uh, you know, it, it no longer needs Ingram. Ingram is holding it
1: back. Right. Yeah. Um. And maybe it should be freed of of Ingram so that it can uh, achieve its own dreams oh but also at the same time ingram has this obviously unhealthy fixation on julie who is his mm-hmm. nurse uh you know she she's supposed to be there helping take care of him during his uh, his illness uh, but he's, he's obviously got different plans. He's like, he, he's like, Julie, since you came, I have found new life, a new source of energy, a stronger ambition to live. And he keeps talking about her beauty and stuff. Um, and then when she leaves the room, he's confessing to Conrad. He's like, I need her. She's the only one I care about. And she is quite rightly just kind of like, eh, like looking for <laughs> ways to leave the room. Mm-hmm. Well, anyway, Ingram invites both Julie and Conrad to a dinner that he's hosting, where he will be having his lawyer from Rome, a man named Duprex, and also Hillary, his secretary, who is Peter Lorre. And the next scene is the one where we actually meet Hillary. Uh, Peter Lorre is tucked away up in his study, reading from occult tomes, Uh, It's supposed to be implied that he's doing serious, deep, arcane research, though we get to see the title page of the book that he's got in his hands. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, it just doesn't seem that wild to me. It's called Lombardo's History of Astrology, a Complete Textbook for Astrologers by Federico Lombardo. And I don't know, I, I thought it was funny because in a minute he starts talking about how he's unlocking the ancient secrets of the stars but he's doing that by reading what looks like a mass-printed introductory textbook for astrology.
2: Yeah, you, the way they set it up, you'd expect it would be more of some sort of ancient tome that he's
1: uh, consulting. But yeah, uh, look at this this uh, original scroll from ancient Babylon. But no, it's like a it's a printed book.
2: <laughs> well, we don't know how he seems obsessed with this uh, research, but we don't know how far along he, he is. Maybe he's maybe he just started it the other day, and he's just super into it. But you got to start somewhere. Might as well start with the uh, the you know the, the with
1: this before you move on to the Necronomicon and so forth. I guess so. But in this scene, we learn of a conflict between Hillary and Julie because Julie is exhausted by constantly attending to the old man. And she's creeped out by his obsession with her. So she wants to quit and travel back to the United States. You you can totally understand that. But then meanwhile, Hillary is like, you cannot do that. You will regret it. Uh, (laughs) Why is this? Well, It's because he is in the middle of achieving a world-historical breakthrough (laughs) in unlocking the secrets of ancient astrology with this introductory textbook. And uh, if he unlocks these secrets, they would allow him to predict the future with absolute certainty. He tells us that this knowledge has been lost since the burning of the Alexandrian Library, but he is now just on the cusp of rediscovering it. (laughs) And anyway, so he explains to Julie, look, you have to stay here and let Ingram uh, be obsessed with you, because if you don't, I'm going to have to do work for him, and I don't have time (laughs) for that. I'm learning elite Zodiac sorcery.
2: Yes, it's like the boss is is obsessed with you. If you leave, he will make me work.
1: Yeah.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Take away all of my free time for my astrology Wikipedia
1: scrolling. Right. So he's and he begs her quite desperately to stay. Uh, with Peter Laurie's trademark pitiful puppy dog eyes welling with tears at the thought of not succeeding <laughs> at becoming a wizard. Yeah. And she she's like, "I don't know. I mean, I'd like to help you, but I really do need to get out of here." And he's like, "No, please." <laughs> <laughs> and she also has no comment at all about the astrology or wizardry or anything. She's just like, "Yeah, I get it, but I I need to go." yeah there's very little
2: follow up really on the on the astrology thing. I kept expecting it to become more of a of a plot focus but i mm. i and then ultimately I guess it's not as important like just we we know that it's his area of obsession and um if if his if his if his obsession were threatened, then who knows what might happen
1: anyway later we we see this dinner where Ingram and Julie and Conrad and Hillary and the lawyer Duprex are all gathered around the table. And then I love the scene that follows where the old man is like, let's all go around the table now and everyone talk about how sane I am. (laughs) (laughs) And they're, they're, oh, you're extremely sane. You're you're the sanest person I've ever met. Well, I think you're even saner than he does. One of the
2: things I was thinking watching this, though, is like I don't really remember what dinner parties were like. Uh, exactly. Um, yeah. So you know, since they were pre-pandemic, so wow. it's like I'm thinking maybe this is what they will be like when they're finally back. No one will actually know how to entertain multiple people at a dinner table,
1: and we'll just be like, "Go around." Am I not sane? <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Everybody will just go on at length about how your mental balance is awesome, uh, and 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 make sure that your lawyer can can hear them saying that. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, why this whole performance? Well, it's because Duprex, the lawyer has brought a new copy of Ingram's will. And everybody there has to sign it to testify that Ingram is of sound mind when he authorizes this this version of the will. And then Ingram plays the piano for everybody. And I was wondering, okay, so is Duprex the lawyer getting paid to have dinner and listen to him play the piano? Um, I mean, probably so. You know he's, he's, you know he's charging by the hour. Anyway, later in the garden, Conrad and Julie meet up. And I think this is the first time we really see them – having some alone time and they, they discuss what they each want. Uh, Conrad confronts her about whether she's leaving and she says, how did you know? And then Conrad says, there are three forms of communication, the telephone, the telegram and the commissario (laughs) commissario is the fastest. So it's like gossip cop strikes again. (laughs) I don't know if that is unique to the character in this movie or was there a general idea at the time that, like late nineteenth-century Italian police, were huge gossips?
2: I don't. know. I guess I just I figured he's he's kind of the you know a central part of the community. He kind of knows what's going on with everybody, and he's yeah. also he's also very no uh, nosy about everything.
1: Right, he is, and uh, they talk about. What they want, and, and it's a very tender scene, and she discusses how she feels guilty, but also that she has to escape, and Conrad confesses that he's in love with her, and it seems like she likes him too, so they decide to run away together, and they kiss. Meanwhile, Peter Laurie is creeping on them from behind the hedges where he overhears everything, and you can just see the anguish in his face. He's like, no, my astrology <laughs> research, I will never achieve awesome power unless I sabotage this right now. So he goes to Ingram and just immediately tattles.
2: Yes, yeah. He's like, like uh, yeah, Conrad's out there, he's talking to Julie, they were smooching, he's going to take her away from you, and we can't let that happen, Ingram.
1: But, of course, Ingram he doesn't want to hear this, you know this is this is this is rocking his world, and he's not happy with it. So he becomes enraged and brutally chokes Hillary with his left hand, yeah. and uh, Julie runs in just in time just in time to save Hillary's life and Dude has horrible scars on his throat. Mm-hmm. Ingram orders Hillary out of the house. He says, "I never want to see you again." And oh, and we also see that Duprex the lawyer is nearby spying. Did you notice how many? scenes of a character hiding in the shadows spying on other characters there were in this movie it's constant
2: it is yeah there's a lot of uh, a lot of conniving and eavesdropping in this picture
1: but later that night The spookiness sets in because the the atmosphere changes. Wind tears through the gardens and the window shutters are banging and clattering in the dark. And then ominous music swells as Ingram senses something. And he, he wakes up. He gets out of bed. He gets into his wheelchair and he goes out to the main hall where he believes he hears a ghostly figure playing his piano. Like he hears his own piano performances but there's nobody there, nobody at the piano. And this appears to drive him mad, and he ends up falling down the stairs, and he dies.
2: Yeah, this is a weird scene. Uh, it was a weird scene at the time, not knowing what was going to happen. And by the end of the film, looking back on it, I, I, I have a lot of questions about what was actually occurring here. But they do that kind of, like, wavy optical effect that makes it feel like there is some sort of uh, delusion going on here, that he is hallucinating uh, and is
1: unwell. Now, given what we find out at the end of the movie, though, do you think there was a hidden record player involved in this scene?
2: Uh, I mean, I want to make an argument for it, but then I feel like if that were the case, it would break a lot of things about the plot as we understand it. Because it means there's some other villain at play here. Well, I don't know. Could be Hillary. Could be playing a
1: hidden record player to drive the man mad by by thinking that he's hearing somebody playing his own music.
2: Maybe. I don't know. It, it, it doesn't feel like a perfect fit for some reason. I'm not sure though.
1: Okay. Well, I guess that's jumping ahead to the Scooby-Doo ending, which we'll have to come back to in a bit. Uh, but uh, I thought also there was, I know they weren't doing this on purpose, but there was a bit of slightly awkward editing where for some reason it, it cuts from Ingram's death scene to church bells and mourners in procession. And -hmm. for some reason, the, the feeling the edit suggests (laughs) is that this is Ingram's funeral. And it's like 15 minutes later.
2: Yeah. Like, like Ingram died and they just called the whole town over. They're like, all right, everybody come. It's happened. We got to do this now.
1: I think it's because they're both at night and I don't know, something visual about the cut. It just makes it seem like, and then a, a few minutes later, here's where we are. And Ingram's laid out on a big, like black cushion and people are observing him and uh, the commissario even comes to the funeral where he and Conrad have some Marsala together and talk things over. And they discuss how Ingram's money-grubbing distant relatives have already showed up. They are here to claim their, their inheritance. They want the money. And uh, these are a couple of American guys from London named Raymond and Donald Arlington. Uh, Raymond is the father, played by Charles Dingle. And I think he is supposed to be Ingram's brother-in-law he was married mm-hmm. to ingram's sister i think correct yes and then donald is his son and they say uh we yeah we're his only living relatives so they think that they are here for some money and uh Don, oh oh and there, there are people of course mourning outside and uh the commissario explains oh these are the professional mourner, mourners they will be mourning through the night it is customary in these parts and uh Raymond and Donald are obviously they're they 're very stuffy types, and they're bothered by all of the the audible mourning, so Donald is like, "Ask those witches to stop howling and <laughs> uh, and they're they 're not very sympathetic to local customs
2: well they 're not looking to put down roots here they 're looking no. to uh collect and cut out
1: right in fact they 're even they focus on the occult books, the astrology books Raymond and donald start just grabbing books off the shelf, and they're like, oh, Lombardo's Astrology, eh? You know, the British Library will give me 10 pounds for this book. <laughs> and meanwhile, uh, Peter Lorre's in the background going like, no! <laughs> <laughs> um,
2: it's, it's a kind of a, an alarming scene where he, he actually gets in, um, in, a, in a Donald's face. Yeah, and uh, is like is like tells him to 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 leave the books alone, and it's it's one of those moments where uh, like Laurie is intimidating in this moment. Like maybe he's even a little too intimidating. Like they actually maybe should have uh, done another take and backed it up a little bit, you know?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. He well, he's furious, and you understand why. Like they're undercutting his his wizard quest, Mm -hmm. and just to get a few pounds from the British Library. Uh, So so immediately there is conflict over. Uh, who will be inheriting the goods. It's a mm-hmm. classic murder mystery setup, right? It's, the, you right. know, uh, there are a ton of movies like this. Oh, you know, it's actually the same premise as um, Knives Out. Yeah. I thought really, you know,
2: thinking back on Knives Out, you know, fine film would have benefited from a disembodied hand.
1: Yes. Maybe they're going to do that in the sequel. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Right. So everybody's got to fight over the, the dead man's possessions and we get a reading of the will scene where we learn, uh, gasp, that in the most recent revision of his will, the one that everybody had to come to dinner and, and talk about how sane he was in order to, to make possible, Ingram radically changed the distribution of his assets. So in the previous draft, everything had been going to Donald Arlington, the, the mean youth who was like, make those witches be quiet. Mm-hmm. Um and now Ingram has changed it so that all of his possessions are instead going to Julie. And obviously the Arlington's do not like this. They're, they're mm-hmm. here for the money. And when they find out they're not getting the money, they're instantly threatening to sue. They say they're going to go to court and get this will thrown out so that they can get possession of the Villa Francesco and all of Hillary's precious astrology books. And there's some scheming that goes on. Uh, Oh, Duprex, the lawyer, he he's doing some, some triple dealing. He's Mm -hmm. like telling the Arlington's in private that, uh, that, uh, if they will promise him a third of the inheritance, that he will come work for them and definitely get the, the new copy of the will thrown out in court. Yeah. And it seems like a done deal. They're like, okay. And, uh, Duprex is like, okay, tomorrow the will will be broken. But later that night, Strange things start happening. For example, the servants in the kitchen notice there is a light out in the mausoleum where Ingram's body was laid to rest. And this is apparently so frightening that when the maid in the kitchen sees it, she screams and drops something breakable on the floor, which... No, oh, that seems to me a little bit excessive, just seeing a light in the crypt. is that scream worthy? I'm not sure.
2: Yeah, uh, I mean, it, would, it might be something uh, to be alarmed about, but it doesn't necessarily mean the dead are coming back to life.
1: Well, the Arlington's go to investigate, but they find nobody out there. Nothing out of the ordinary. But later that night, Duprex... Oh, he has a date with uh, – he's he's going to have a whole handful of trouble. Mm-hmm. And uh, we got some wonderful close-ups on his face. I'm sorry you, you listeners out there cannot see the, the screen grabs I got and I'm having Rob look at right now. But uh, wide eyes, uh, there, there's a really great part is like you see a hand wearing Ingram's ring reach around mm-hmm. a door as it creeps open. And then Duprex is like pinned up against the wall doing the like – face back nostrils flaring kind of thing that ah uh, it's coming to get me the mummy is going to break my neck mm-hmm. and uh, honestly I miss Duprex when he's gone from the movie yeah yeah he was a he was a fun presence I think he's just got one of those kind of curious looking faces that yeah. uh, that is nice to round out a movie <laughs> Oh, but also somebody starts playing piano in the middle of the night, sounding just like Ingram, and people are woken up by the sound, but when they go to investigate, there's no one at the piano, Mm -hmm. though Ingram's giant ring is there. It's sitting on top of the piano, and they find a dead lawyer in the corner of the room. It's Duprex. He has been choked. Mm Mm-hmm. So uh oh, and then it looks like the Arlingtons aren't going to get their special astrology books after all, uh, but the police are called in to investigate and and what do you know it's our old friend the commissario gossip cop once again, and he's there to to uh, do do all the forensics so they look for fingerprints they, they take fingerprint dustings from the piano. And they compare those to everybody alive in the house. And it turns out that they match no one alive in the house. Huh? Mm. Uh, so there's a lot of talking about, you know, motive, who, who could it have been? And they, they do discuss that a former will existed that would have left everything to Donald, which would seem to implicate Julie uh, or would implicate Conrad as uh, Julie's ally. And so people go all around pointing fingers, but I love how Conrad just comes straight out and he's like, well, obviously Ingram's ghost killed Duprex (laughs) because he didn't want his will contested. And then the commissario is like, but there are no such things as ghosts. But then there's a, there's just absolutely exquisite logic scene that follows. So the commissario is like, how can we know it was a ghost? I've never seen a ghost. And Conrad says, neither have I, but one can never be absolutely sure they don't exist. So, oh well, then it must have been a ghost. You know, you can't <laughs> prove they they don't exist. Then, therefore, this murder was done by one.
2: I mean, it's it's. I believe it was the what the Sherlock Holmes uh, quote. You know, when when all natural. Uh, uh, rationales when you have
1: excluded the impossible, in, the improbable, whatever it is, yeah.
2: Yeah, so in this, it's it's similar. It's just if you've thought of the impossible, just stick with that. That yeah. sounds good.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well anyway the next day everybody goes to the mausoleum to investigate a lead about the light in the crypt the night before and they find a number of very odd things. there is a tiny window broken from the inside to the outside with a little jagged opening that a person could clearly not fit through yeah, and, they and also at this
2: point I'm getting excited like that 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 was like oh well we're getting there we're Ooh. getting to the hand. Oh.
1: It's gonna be a hand. And the coffin has been tampered with. They open it up and uh oh, the corpse of Ingram is missing its left hand. Yeah, this was
2: really excellent, I thought, because yeah, everybody's shocked and I was afraid they weren't going to show it, but then they do show it. There's a knife in like like the paralyzed hand. Yeah. And then there's the bloody stump where the um the superpowered hand was previously attached.
1: Right. And then uh, they also find outside the broken window, no footprints, but handprints, yes. a, a line of single handprints, as if a hand by itself was crawling along the ground. Or if not crawling, then at least like flip-flopping, like doing yeah. some sort of a fish out of a water thing. And then there's a kind of fun sequence where uh, they go out in public, Conrad and Julie, like go to the cafe to get some brandy. And the whole town just shuns them because mm-hmm. apparently they believe somebody at the Villa Francesco has the evil eye and they just can't can't do business with them anymore. Even like the guy at the cafe who had served them before is like, I reserve the right to refuse service. You you, you can't come in here.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think Conrad's even like, realizes he's like, we're going to have to leave because otherwise we will starve. Nobody will feed us.
1: Right. They're going to be starved out of the town. And then also they meet up with the commissario and there is new evidence. I think he says, am I right about this? He's like, okay, so the fingerprints on the piano, who we assume belonged to the killer, they were Ingrams and they were not older than a day. So this would have <laughs> been after Ingram was dead, but also, uh, can you date fingerprints? I mean, you, you can do anything with forensics
2: in a motion picture.
1: Yeah. Oh, but at some point, the commissario seems to be won over because he says, "In my mind, there is no doubt the hand is walking around." <laughs> uh, but I'd say it's right about here that the movie transitions into high gear hand mode. Would you agree? Yeah.
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I, I was I was totally on board with all of this because it's it's clear that this is a a, 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 a disembodied hand crawling around, attacking people in the night. And uh, they have some just some fabulous scenes follow.
1: Right, there's a great confrontation between Hillary and Donald Arlington, the shut those witches up kid, mm-hmm. and uh, he, and so Donald Arlington comes into Hillary's office, and he's like, "Hey, well, what are you expecting to find in all these old astrology books?" And Peter Laurie says, "The you know the law that changes unknown fate into scientific fact." Oh, great! <laughs> uh, and as an example or a demonstration of of what he can predict with his astrology knowledge. He's like, hey, Donald, did you know that there were two other people who lived hundreds of years ago who have the same birthday as you, and they both died by being choked to death? (laughs) And Donald's like, wow, okay. Yeah, he's like, well, good. I I hate surprises. It's it's kind of a fun comeback there and they oh 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 and then there uh it it turns out Donald remembers where there was a safe hidden behind the bookcase in in the study here uh because he saw uh saw Ingram open it when he was a young child he remembers there is a jingle to re, to uh summon the combination to mind and Donald comes back later in the night to try to return to the safe Um, But then meanwhile, the commissario is in the house. He's like hiding out behind the fireplace, watching from the shadows. And it's those bad fingers striking once again. Donald's creeping around and he opens up the door to the study a crack while the commissario is looking. And a hand reaches around as if from behind and grabs him by the throat wearing the Ingram ring. Mm -hmm. But this time it's like man, this is a lock because the police detective is right there and he witnesses the attack by the killer hand.
2: Yeah, so at this point I'm completely convinced and uh, yeah. and excited to see more of the hand.
1: Though technically still the hand, you can't see if there, it belongs to an arm or not because it's like the door is only open a crack.
2: Now, I would say one of the advantages to, to the plotting here is that it, at this point in the film, you might not know exactly how good the special effects will be. And so you don't know, you know, the limitations here are based on like what was possible with the effects. Like maybe right. the hand is always going to attack people uh, close to a door because that's
1: all that's possible with, with filmmaking. Right. Uh, so so Donald is not killed. He he is injured. And Julie says that there is a possibility of brain fever, but he's there recovering in the night. Meanwhile, the servants all flee the villa because they believe that the hand is loose and it's the devil. And then later that night, there is a, one of the best scenes in the movie. This mm-hmm. great long one-on-one scene between Peter Lorre and the hand, and we finally see the hand revealed in all its glory.
2: Yeah, I mean it's pretty great. I mean you know exactly what it's going to be. Nowadays, it's going to be that effect of the the disembodied hand, like they've somehow uh, you know cut out the rest of the body. Today, today you would accomplish it with a like a green suit uh, with every, <laughs> everything covered except for the hand. Um, but it, it looks really good. So, what happens in the scene? Oh well, it's—I uh, mean, it's—I mean, it's a pretty complex scene, I guess, because it's—it's—it's it's, it's crawling across the the, the table. Uh, it's crawling towards uh, um, uh, Hillary and the ring that he was looking at that he, he puts out on the table. Uh, crawls out of this box uh, like a crab, like a spider, and he's, like, overcome with just this complex um, array of Peter Laurie emotions, a lot of dread in there, but also this sense of maybe wonder. The hand uh, crawls across the table to him, and then it kind of— it sort of does a dinosaur, you know, like how you do with your, your hand, where you put the, the middle finger becomes the, uh, like, a, a brachiosaurus neck. Yeah, yeah. Um, it it kind of does that, but but it's clear what it is doing. It is doing what Ingram did in life. It is reaching out and asking that the ring be put on the finger. Ooh,
1: so good. Mm-hmm. And
2: and Laurie's character, Hillary, does it. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's a pretty... A, a, a pretty crazy scene, a pretty uh, uh, horrifically satisfying uh, scene, especially for a picture from the
1: 1940s. Uh, but then Laurie, he he gets the better of the hand, and he ends up trapping it in a drawer. Mm-hmm. And he runs and gets uh, gets Conrad's help. He's like, "Hey, c- come look! I, you know the hand's alive. I caught it in a drawer." But when then when they go check, it's not there. And Hillary has this epic fit of screaming, searching around for the hand. He's all over the place. He eventually finds the hand hiding behind a bunch of books on the bookcase. Oh,
2: this is a great sequence, too, because it's shot, um, it shot from the point of, you know, the impossible point of view of behind the bookshelf. And yeah. we see Laurie's mad face the whole time as he's pulling these books off the shelf. And then the hand's cowering like a, like a cornered spider, like a cornered tarantula behind the last two books. And he pulls those off as well,
1: and he grabs it. Yeah, and he wrestles with the hand and then ends up nailing it to a base. Oh, God, such a good scene. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and then later, uh, Donald and Raymond, they're they're going to uh, – I think Donald remembers how to open the safe to get the whatever it is out of it he's looking for. Maybe it's the will or something, I don't recall. But he's trying to get in there, and they, oh, they manage to open up the safe, and then when they do, what's inside the safe? It's the severed hand. Yeah. So D- Donald sees it and then runs away screaming – uh, but then we get the, the final sort of confrontation and reveal sequence. So how do we describe that?
2: Well, um, so uh, at this point in the film that we're, we've come up to, it, like, it really feels like this hand is a reality, right? Yeah,'ve this, this, seen we've, it. we've seen it crawling around. I guess but then you, you quickly are made to realize who has actually seen the hand in its full glory, Only one character. Peter Lorre, and that's yeah. Peter Laurie's Hillary character. No one else has seen it crawling around on the table. No one else has nailed it down. And his uh, attempts to show it to other people, come look, it's in the drawer, haven't actually panned out.
1: Now, Donald and Raymond did see it in the safe, but it wasn't moving. It's right. just laying there in the safe. So, yeah, we're coming to the realization that, yes, that corpse's
2: hand is missing. That corpse's hand is in the safe, nailed to a board. Um But perhaps it isn't actually alive. Perhaps only Peter Lorre's character, uh, Hillary, thinks that the hand is alive. Uh, And if that is the case, well, who's doing all the strangling? Well, it would have to be Peter Lorre's character, Hillary.
1: Right. And that's the conclusion that Julie seems to come to. There's kind of a confrontation between Julie and Hillary. And then Hillary uh, tries to choke her, but fails. And then he he further descends into madness. He loses his mind, and he thinks he sees the hand everywhere.
2: Right. And there's a scene where he's, he's coming increasingly unhinged, and he's approaching her with a knife. And she kind of turns the tables on him. Like she she plays into his madness. And she's like, no, you're right. It is the hand. We've got to get that hand. We've got to stop yeah. that hand. And that buys her a little time.
1: She's on team anti-hand, yeah. Mm-hmm. But I think what we're supposed to understand is that, so Hillary did indeed sever the hand. Yes. And he so he went to the grave, cut off the hand, and then used the severed hand to attack the lawyer Duprex. Uh, And, like, put the fingerprints all over the piano and stuff to fool everybody and make make them think the hand had come back to life. But then he started to believe his own story. And as he's losing his mind, he thinks the hand is actually pursuing him.
2: Yeah, there's kind of a healthy dose of the telltale heart in all of this, where he's he's driven mad by his own crimes and uh, begins to believe that the hand is actually alive, begins to see the hand, and then ultimately, uh, you know, ends up battling the hand.
1: Yeah, there's a great SmackDown scene where he he fights the hand, and in the end, he he has to purge it by fire.
2: Yes, yes, throws the hand into the fireplace, and this is all just a great uh, showcase for for Lori. You know, he gets to, to act mad and physical, and you know, just uh, en, en, enraged and uh, and also full of horror. Uh, really fun performance that I didn't think we were going to get because again. The the first half of the film, you can easily imagine it's going to be Alda's character, Conrad, battling the hand and saving um, uh, the female lead at the end. But Conrad's really not seen much. Yeah, what's he doing?
1: He's off somewhere.
2: Uh, You know, having a smoke or something, I guess. Selling some crap to some tourists. Right. Yeah,
1: he's trying to sell Julie some cameos. (laughs) (laughs) But in the end, after this big confrontation, uh, wait— I'm suddenly forgetting. Hillary dies, but how does he die? Uh, The hand chokes him, he falls down, and then
2: we do a fade where the hand disappears to make it clear to the audience, I guess, that the hand was a figment of his imagination.
1: So did he choke himself?
2: Well, I thought that when the hand disappeared, it was, or the hand was going to be shown to be his own hand, but then there's no hand there at all. So I don't know if it's just like he died via psychic damage from Mm. the madness, or if he... It's implied that he choked himself, and it's just maybe not um, – they, they didn't really show it uh, on on screen uh, in, in a but, way that was convincing.
1: But it's a full-on Scooby-Doo ending because they, oh, like, yeah. uncover all of the – like, here's what they were doing because they, there is a gramophone – there's, like, a record player inside a suit of armor That was hidden there to apparently simulate Ingram's ghost playing the piano because it was a recording of Ingram playing, and they would, and that uh, they said that Hillary would play that in order to fool people into thinking that Ingram was running around.
2: Yeah, which is great. We I love an ending when they they describe something. They they give you all the details in a way that it makes no sense whatsoever. Like yeah, this this means that it's such a good vinyl recording, or it's such a good uh, like late nineteenth uh, century um, sound system that it's indistinguishable from live piano uh, performance. Uh, right. The, the people in the house are just like the piano is clearly playing. The dead have come back to life. Right. And it just feels like, you know, it's one of these endings that's that's like, don't worry, there's nothing supernatural exists. There are no monsters. There are no hands. This was all just a clever uh, scheme, and it wasn't clever enough for the good guys. Don't you forget it.
1: Yeah, and then the commissario does the whole comedy routine. Oh, there's the Glove. There's like the glove that's dropped on the stairs, and you think it's a hand, but then it's just a glove.
2: Yeah, like I I thought they were, oh, maybe they're going to go for it, and they're going to have the twist ending, nope, the hand is real, the hand was real the whole time, and it's going to kill you. I would have loved that, and I thought that's what we were getting, but then they're like, no, he just dropped a glove, and it made a maid faint.
1: Well, there's like four <laughs> twist endings that they take back. Then yeah. later, you think that they're doing it again because the hand with the ring is creeping up at the commissario's neck while he's doing comedy into the camera. Yeah, uh, But then he's like, oh, it is my own hand. <laughs>
2: oh, it was, yeah, it's absolutely terrible. This is like, come on. I feel like you're making fun of the film that we just watched and, and enjoyed. But, uh, but like, like we said, it seems to have been more or less the style of the time. I mean, didn't Edgar Allan Poe do this, you know, where at the end of The Telltale Heart, he's like, uh, you know, he's talking about the maddening beat. of that kidding. Heart. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a real heart at all. I'm just, it was all in my mind. Isn't that kooky? Isn't it crazy? There are no, there are no uh, uh, undead hearts, people. Don't worry about it.
1: <laughs> oh, man. All right. Well, I feel like we got to wrap it up for The Beast with Five Fingers. All right. Yeah, let's do it. But hey, if you
2: want to see this film yourself... Um, I guess for the most part you're in luck because it is widely available to you know, to purchase or rent digitally. You can also pick it up on DVD. But on the other hand, we were talking about this before we recorded. This doesn't seem to be a film that's received any like remastering love, or uh, certainly doesn't seem to have been released on Blu-ray or anything. So Not that maybe I've seen. maybe we'll get that in the future. And uh, and and that being said, it's still a, a, a beautiful looking film. Uh, it's not like the the film quality is you know degraded or anything to to any degree that makes it unwatchable. But uh, I feel like it deserves uh, more love than it's seen. Agreed. All right. Well, uh, write in if you have thoughts on this particular film or other Crawling Hand movies, related Crawling Hand movies that we didn't cover. Uh, I'd also love to hear from anyone out there who plays the piano. Uh, what's the deal with, with one-headed piano? Is that, is, uh, I mean, I, I guess it, it's, is, it, is that a thing? Let us know. Um, uh, we would love to hear from you. In the meantime, if you'd like to check out other episodes of Weird House Cinema, it publishes every Friday in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. Uh, you know, we're primarily a science podcast with core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays, listener mail on Mondays, and an artifact short form episode on Wednesdays. But on Friday, uh, that's when we uh, we set aside most serious matters and just talk about a strange film.
1: Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com.